0: Today is April 9th, 2019, and my guest is neurologist and author Robert Burton. He was chief of the Division of Neurology at UCSF Mount Sion Hospital and was associate chief of the Department of Neurosciences at UCSF Mount Sion Hospital. In addition to his clinical experience in neurology, he has written three novels and nonfiction works on the brain. Today we're going to talk about his book from 2008, On Being Certain, Believing You Are Right Even When You're Not, and I want to thank Twitter friend Edward Einhorn for the recommendation. Robert,
1: welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks very much. Look forward to it.
0: I loved your book. It uh, hit on many, many themes that we talk here at EconTalk about. Uh, how do we know what we know? The uh, power of uncertainty and the often overwhelming power of being certain. I, I want to start with a concept that's at the heart of the book that you call the feeling of knowing. How would you describe that?
1: Uh, I, in its most extreme form, which is a way of starting, is think about having an aha. You're thinking about an idea or a or a novel or a story or, or something you've been studying and it doesn't make sense and all of a sudden it does make sense. And it makes sense in a profound way. You feel, ah, oh, I know that. And that's a feeling that overcomes you. And in neuropsychological jargon, that would be considered a feeling of knowing. In other words, it's a involuntarily produced, spontaneous sensation that welds together the feeling of understanding along with some information that comes into your conscious mind.
0: And of course, it's an incredibly powerful and necessary part of life. If you were uncertain about everything, you'd be paralyzed. You'd be constantly trying to figure out what to do next. Uh, so it's an enormously important part of, of, of human experience.
1: Correct. Correct.
0: You tell the story early on about which kind of haunted me uh, about the Challenger, the um, NASA sh- uh, tragedy, And tell the story of what uh, of the survey that was done of students the day after and then two and a half years later.
1: And actually, that story is one of the initial triggers for me writing this book. In Emory University, On the morning of the Challenger shuttle explosion, a psychologist asked all of his students, and there were 120 plus students, to write down exactly what they experienced at the moment of the uh, shuttle, where they were, how they felt, all the details. And then he collected the notebooks. And then two and a half years later, he interviewed them again to see how their memories... Stayed the same or morphed over time, and the vast majority of the people got the information wrong. They had an experience of a what happened to Shell that was quite different than the actual facts. But what stumped me was that there was a, a note from one person that indicated situation A, and then two and a half years later, he stated B, which is contrary to A. And the teacher said to him, "Well, you wrote this right after the." explosion. Isn't this more likely to be the correct than the newer version? He says, yes, I know I wrote that then. I know it's my handwriting, but no, the new version's the correct one. And what struck me was the utter certainty that his new version was correct and the old one, which is almost certainly more likely to be accurate, was dead wrong. It was as though he knew at a cognitive sense that he should answer that the uh, initial journal was correct but he couldn't get over the feeling that the subsequent was correct, which meant that the morphed experience, morphed memory, had uh, replaced the initial memory, and the sensation of knowing had gone from the initial memory to the new memory. And I thought, how is this possible? There's no psychological reason why he would stick up for something which he knows is wrong. It just made no sense, and you realize, well, there's something more profound, and it was the thing that led me to first think about well, maybe this feeling of knowing that I was, that has changed the feeling about his memory isn't within his voluntary control.
0: So I found that story very powerful, and I'm going to put myself on the couch here. It won't be the first time. Um, I've retold it, I think, at least twice to people who were fascinated by it, and it. it um, I realized, if I thought about it, that it kind of plays to the story plays to my own. Um, epistemological humility, my eagerness to be uncertain. And the more I thought about it, I wondered, well, well, there was one kid who, who was maybe even being facetious, right? Maybe he just said, I know it's my handwriting, but I know what happened. Um, maybe it wasn't a well-run survey. Maybe, right? There's, there's so many questions right. about it, but once I read the story, Because I was so prone (laughs) to be eager to believe it, my feeling of knowing was invoked by it, and I just said, huh, not only does that confirm what I already know, I now have a really dramatic, beautiful example because surely two and a half years later is less accurate than the – in my memory, by the way, of your book, it was the day after, not the day of – but close I mean,
1: yeah, yes. Right. <laughs>
0: but but isn't that interesting? I mean, I, I read that when I read your story, I thought, yes, we're we're we have trouble knowing, and yet we have trouble admitting that we don't know. And and of course, that's my own challenge that I face is that, pardon the phrase, challenge is that I'm I'm a little bit addicted to not knowing.
1: Correct. I th- and if we, you might ask me about that because I think part of this, once you realize that this is in fact an involuntary sensation, then you might start to think in terms of, I wonder if some people are biologically more predisposed to enjoyment of uncertainty and ambiguity and others are more predisposed on a biologic, even perhaps at least in part genetic basis to a, f- a desire for a greater sense of certainty. And I explore that in the book in some detail. We can talk about that later, maybe.
0: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Um, One thing I thought about, you didn't mention this, but um, it may only be in my marriage. You know, it it may be just we're different. But in my experience, my wife and I have different memories of what happened in various incidents and episodes in our past uh, of what was said, what was felt, what was on the table and so on. And we're both pretty adamant about what we remember, and I think it's a useful um, bit of marital counseling to be aware that, that these memories are often not accurate.
1: Well, this is actually why in the book I finally explored what they call an art- artificial intelligence as the hidden layer. And if you think about it in a very simplest of terms, let's say you and your wife are standing side by side watching a car accident – and your inputs are exactly the same. You have the same angle as if your eyes are superimposed upon hers. And it, once it gets into your brain, all bets are off as to how it's perceived. What you see at the retinal level is not what your brain interprets at the conscious level. It goes through various layers, hierarchical layers of uh, in the visual cortex and then throughout connecting neural networks and so your perception is not my perception it's why I th- your red isn't my red even if we see the same uh, angstrom length incoming light it doesn't it isn't the same and, and if then if you start to think of why your wife and yours might be different which s- sad to say is the truth with most people including in my 50 year plus marriage we see things differently And then you say, well, how does that start? Well, it starts in part with things that we can sort of assess, such as difference in genetics. For example, if you have a uh, biologic predisposition towards uh, fear and and your spouse does not, or one's got a higher degree of innate optimism or pessimism, that's going to shade how you see it's the same automobile accident. Now we know that there's, if you think of all the variables in the perceiving event, it would be extraordinarily unlikely that you would see the same thing if you think in fact that your perception is based upon all your prior experience and your biology i mean you you read now about epigenetic studies where something that happened to your grandparents might affect you um, modifying your gene expression and let's say your wife doesn't have that then it's going to see your two brains are just going to see it differently and there's no reason to expect you'd see it the same I think that's one of the big fallacies about the concept of rationality is that two people given the same initial inputs should get the same outputs. That's simply not true.
0: Yeah, we're, I think the temptation to see the brain as a computer and in general, not every single time, but most of the time an algorithm yields the same result by almost by definition of when the data is inputted. And so we expect our brains to do the same thing, and they don't.
1: Well, you know, that... that idea of the brain as a computer i think is being replaced at least metaphorically by it as a deep learning mechanism <laughs> and, if, and if you think about deep learning mechanisms we don't know why that input causes that output in other words we can look we can look at what happened to the um let's 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 say that, that the the, in the early stages when when kasparov lost to big blue yeah. the, Nobody knows why Big Blue made the moves that it made. In fact, one of the telling moves that it made, which apparently made Kasparov want to rip his hair out, was something which turned out to be a glitch in the software. But nobody really knew why why it did what it did. And certainly when it made beat the Go people, the newer version, beat the, the world's Go champion, they can see that it won, but they don't know how it won. So now if you look upon the computations in the brain... As not being fixed algorithms, which is the old computer model dating back from the Norbert Wiener, you know, cyber uh, genetics, genetics and that kind of thing. Yeah, cybernetics. Uh, it isn't like that. So, but if you take the new deep learning one, which may or may not turn out to be closer to a truth, um, input doesn't equal output. Same input into two different neural mechanisms won't give you the same output. And so I think you could still think of one. The brain as a computational device, if you get away from the idea of fixed algorithms and start thinking about it as uh, no fixed algorithms, but deep learning techniques with uh, positive feedback according to results, et cetera.
0: Of course, Kasparov couldn't explain why he made the moves he did, or at least many of the times he couldn't. And you talk, Exactly. You talk in the book. We've talked many times in this program. I just think it's extremely unintuitive for most people, so I don't mind retelling these stories. But… So many times great geniuses have insights they can't explain. It just, quote, came to me. Uh, it was the aha moment you're talking about. I've used a number of times the Andrew Wiles uh, correct proof of Fermat's last theorem where he just said, I was just looking, sitting at his desk looking off in the distance and suddenly I saw the right answer. Uh, it's very moving, um, but we don't understand it. The person closest to it doesn't understand it. Uh, I just want to – when you said deep learning, I started to – I giggled because – i 'm always fascinated by our desperate attempts as human beings to find a metaphor for our, for reality that that um, helps us understand it so uh, in the old days, the brain was a clock or the world was a clock uh, because the clock was the most advanced technological thing we had in the 50's the brain was the sixties or eighties or the brain was a computer like a a standard computer. And now it's like a neural network with deep learning. <laughs> it's like, right. I, I just find that, uh, I, I don't think that's progress. I think it's, uh, it, it sounds like progress, but I think it's more like, um, uh, it's a little bit of self-deception there in my view.
1: Well, you know, I think that what one of the things that science does is it probably provides temporary metaphors. Yeah. tools re- replace And I should just say as an aside, I don't know if you're aware of this, I wrote a, a little piece, an op-ed piece for the New York Times about uh, Donald Trump being a beta version of a neural network deep learning machine. And the reason I wrote that is because you watch on uh, television every day people speculating on what makes him tick. But if you think about it from a completely different standpoint, you think if your goal, only goal is to win then you would be more equivalent to the uh, deep blue uh, neural uh, deep learning machine of, of deep blue in which if your goal is winning, then you might try outrageous maneuvers in order to win because you don't have any underlying ideology, preconceptions, et cetera. And if you looked at Donald Trump from that light, you'd say, aha, if his sole goal is, is winning, then we don't really know why he does what he does. And I thought it it, it serves as a great metaphor for saying the old metaphors are wrong and then someday maybe this one will be wrong too and you no can look, out. look look back the same way that's the history of science
0: well if I'm trying to figure out what makes somebody tick I'm definitely going to use a clock metaphor and I, <laughs> I'm, I'm making Very a joke funny. of course because it's exactly where that comes from right it's exactly and, then, and, that's,
1: and that's why people write about twice a day
0: yeah <laughs> if you're, for a stop clock anyway um, I'm going to go back to that um, you, you alluded You mentioned briefly uh, the hidden layer, a very interesting part of the book. Um, And again, I'll confess that when I read it the first time, it it, it overwhelmed me. I went back and read it again, um, and I I realized I was a little more enthusiastic, and and you were a little less enthusiastic, I think, than I remembered when I reread it. Uh, The idea is that by by definition, almost, uh, a lot of things are going on under the surface, that we don't have access to in our brain. Example you give in the book is you go to bed trying to think of a, a, the name of a comic strip that's just outside your memory and you wake up and the word pogo jumps in your mind. You don't, you don't will it into, you don't say to yourself, I wonder what that comic strip really was called. It just, there it is, just sitting there. Your brain worked on it while you were asleep. And we understand that. That happens all the time. It happens when I drive home from work. You know, I can be daydreaming and all of a sudden I realize, oh, I'm still on the road. I wasn't I was paying attention. My eyes weren't closed. But my brain was doing the driving. You know, I've done it so many times, that route. And that's just kind of second nature. But we don't really understand what's going on underneath there. And you, you posit, again, a, a neural network type approach, what we've learned from artificial neural networks, and speculate that it might be what's going on in our own brains. Talk about that because the, the sort of, um, it's almost Bayesian. It's also a little bit of... Uh, of a voting or uh, wisdom of crowds approach, an emergent idea that comes that runs all through economics uh, talk about what your thoughts are on that uh, at least when you wrote the book or now after you've thought about it for a few more years
1: so first of all all of your explanations make perfect sense whether or not they're true as, as you know I can't I can't attest to but if you just imagine all of the types of inputs that affect your decision making from the very learning of language is, is taught you by a parent, by uh, a school, by friends, etc. different experiences. It, the biology of whether your family is by nature religious, non-religious, uh, uh, risk-adversive, seeking out risk, et cetera. And those, a lot of these are on genetic basis. And then, there, then the early environment ones, which you can't possibly remember, et cetera, et cetera. So you take there are myriad factors involved in any single thought or decision. Now they have they have to be instantiated in the brain in some mechanism. And it's thought that they're they're somehow embedded. And that's embedded shouldn't be a physical physical term, but a, more of a concept within the neural connections. Uh, within these neural networks. So imagine that each one of these traits is a a person, just for the point of discussion. And now you say, okay, that we've got 5,000 traits that are going to be influencing this decision, and we'll give each one a vote. Some vote yes, some vote no, some vote maybe, and some vote never, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And out of those comes a uh, final output, which would be an idea. And then, in order for that idea to reach consciousness, there has to be some reasonable likelihood that the idea is correct. So, example, that you gave me on the, about the pogo. Um, you don't wake up in the morning and say, yes, it was uh, Charlie Brown. What happened was during the course of the night, you gave your brain uh, the intention to subconsciously give you the name of that comic strip and it remembers the pictures and remembers the, the possum talking and uh, maybe remembers Walt Kelly eventually and remembers this, that, and the other thing. And then it votes on all these people vote and then you get a sensation or a determination, at least that uh, the likelihood that it's Pogo is 10%, 70%, 90%. You have a sort of cutoff in your mind. When the feeling of knowing becomes sufficiently great, it comes into consciousness. Then you say, if you if if the feeling of knowing is profound, you go, it's pogo, and you go, if it's, it's if it's maybe eighty percent likely, you say, I think it's pogo. If it's fifty fifty, it may not even come into consciousness. If it's twenty percent, so you won't you won't your brain won't even give you the possibility of thinking about it. So when you wake up in the morning, your brain has calculated, based upon all of these individual factors, putting in a vote that collectively create an output that is then separately determined the likelihood of its correctness. And that's where the feeling of knowing arises. And then if the two eat, reach whatever in your, in your mind is sort of the cutoff point to reach consciousness, there it is. So when you wake up in the morning, it's been done for you. The intention was put into you to it prior to the start of it in the same way that, um, uh, a creator of an artificial neural network might set the initial conditions but he doesn't set in the the all the various questions you ask because it it figures it will learn on its own, and then it it separately it gives you biologically a, a way of knowing the likelihood that is correct, which is the feeling of right or rightness or wrongness, and that and that's leads to the major qu- in question of how much is done unconsciously, which is what if anything is part of conscious thought,
0: and we don't know. I mean. We do know there are things we call neurons in the brain. As you point out, we don't have a lot of knowledge uh, of this unconscious level, level of thinking. And I, I assume, let me ask it a different way. Uh, do you think we'll ever be able to uh, do a brain scan and find Pogo or find my memory of being six years old in Moses Lake, Washington? Excuse me, uh, seven years old in Moses Lake, Washington. Um because when I said six, I thought, I'm not I'm not so certain about that six. Oh yeah, it's seven. Um do you think we'll ever be able to know enough about the brain to find those kind of uh memories and also leaps of imagination, intuition that are that we call intuition now that are maybe we'll uncover what's how they connect?
1: Um you know, in my second book, Skeptic's Guide to the Uh, mind, I tried to address this as best I could. I don't know what ever means. In other words, down the road, I can imagine that there'll be scientific discoveries that are far beyond what I can conceive of now. So I wouldn't put, put, if you ask it, do I think during our lifetime or in the near future we're going to discover this? I think the answer is no. And part of the problem is really in scientific method. In other words, in order to know that there's a change in the brain, it has to be compared to some other brain state. In other words, very simply, in, in, if you're doing an x-ray of arteries in the brain and you want to see them clearly, you first you get a picture of the skull without the injection, then you get the picture of the uh, arteries when you inject a dye in it's so-called arteriogram, and then you subtract one from the other, and you get rid of all the surrounding stuff, and you have only the difference between baseline and when the, the the dye flows through there. And it's the difference from baseline that determines how we understand changes in activation of any area of the brain. So if you think about this, if if you are seventy years old and you have spent a lifetime of accumulating data, what point would you want to compare hmm. the, the new information with the old? Yeah. there isn't such a thing as a static baseline.
0: But it also seems to me that there's a great deal more uh, belief these days in a uh, interactive, synergistic, again, emergent order to the brain. Uh, somewhat equivalent to what I see happening in, in the field of genetics, that you know used to be in the early days, he was oh, there's going to be a gene for anger or a gene for even height, and yet it turns out it's more complicated. And I assume the brain, you know, in the early days, oh, that's where this happens, but it turns out there's a lot going on at the same time. It's kind of complicated.
1: That's right. Well, if you think about the one that's the most politically charged is the nature of uh, the genetic nature of IQ. And they've studied that for each gene, its contribution to IQ is just above negligible. In other, in other words, it, it, there's no gene that gives you a two-point IQ differential. Uh, and yet, it's pretty clear that there's a genetic component to IQ within within families. You know, there's a smart family and, it's, and with smart kids, and there are other. I mean, so there's no question that genetics plays a role in intelligence. In best examples are not identical twins raised apart, but at the same time, you can't identify any any gene with any significant contribution. It's because it's a massive number and their interactions. People in in talking about genes, for example, it's 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 not just the number of genes, but they are upregulated, downregulated. One AI, you know, enemy of my enemy is my friend concept etc. And so it, the question is, could you ever isolate all these individual entities enough to get to get you a coherent picture of how the brain works? Well, that's what the people who are studying uh, human connectome and those who wish, think that they can uncover the, the location of thought, etc. But to me, it's, um, it's a wonderfully ludicrous endeavor that Jonathan Swift might have written about.
0: I remember we had Gary Greenberg, the uh, psychiatrist on the program talking about mental illness. And, uh, you know, at one point he said, um, well, of course it's chemical. <laughs> but because that's what's we're talking about, a, a, you know, a brain's got chemicals in it, but we don't understand what the chemicals are. It's not. Uh, I read an article recently that said when doctors talk about antidepressants, putting some chemical and imba- fixing a chemical imbalance, they say, well, it's, it's really a metaphor because they don't really understand it. Uh, that's right. But it is chemical, but that's not so helpful. Um, no. We've had uh, Gary Greenberg, actually, uh, is it? fate would have it, talking about the placebo effect. You mentioned it a couple of times in passing, uh, and you talk about people who, who get better knowing it's a placebo, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is unbelievable. Uh, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, it's funny, is that... Uh, I recently subscribed to that on a personal level. There's been a lot of debate about CBD, oil, and whether it has any biologic effect. And I said, but you know, I, and, and I, I understand that it may have none in terms of uh, getting to sleep at night, but on a few occasions when I've been out late or played poker and I'm all revved up, you know, and I would like to get to sleep, I take the CBD and I say, I hope this has a placebo effect. <laughs> How's it, how's it and, working for you? And you know, you go to sleep because you feel reassured. You know that placebo is even uh, the, the, there is a there is a drug for kids who demanded to take something for the common cold, and it's it's basically sugar water. It's actually placebo. The name of the drug is placebo, spelled backwards some way. I've forgotten how you pronounce it, <laughs> and it's it's sold as placebo. So, and then you go, how is that? So that's sort of a second order. You know, using economic terms, that's a second-order uh, effect. <laughs> yeah. But yet it's still, it still works. Well,
0: we've talked on here a number of times about the uh, the procedure for um, back pain where you inject uh, cement into the uh, vertebrae. Right. And uh, observational trials show it's quite successful. A good friend of mine I've mentioned on here before is a pain doctor. His nurse told me it was the best procedure in the entire Office. It was wonderful how many people were – who would walk out with no pain. And when that was in my – in the interview with uh, Adam Sifu about his book Medical Reversals with uh, Prasad, the the, uh, randomized control trial of that procedure versus injecting saline into the back, into the vertebrae, while opening a container of cement to let them smell it uh, had the same effect. Uh, it was clinically, at least had no clinical significance difference. So, uh, you're suggesting you could just say to people, we're going to do that, that great thing. It's going to be saline. I'm going to let you smell the tube, uh, and you'll be better.
1: Yes, because we don't understand what we don't understand even simple concepts like reassurance, I mean, I think if, if you take in the very big picture, even things like Keynesian economics are in, far, in part uh, based upon a placebo effect. If things are bad, you try to encourage people that it's good because it's good that they will have more capital expenditures and they'll bring themselves by a bootstrap out of a, a, a economic bad times. It, it, it Placebo is functional in every single phase of modern life, not just medicine.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that, but you know it is I wide, it is widely believed which is another feeling of, of knowing, which I think is this one, I think is incorrect, but it is widely believed. It was widely believed for a long time that the great depression was cured by optimism, which is what you're talking about. Uh, they forget about the relapse in 1938, but that's okay. Uh, you know, a lot of people credited FDR with, with saving the country because he got people to feel good about themselves, which is, I never thought about it as a placebo effect argument. Uh, when, when confronted with the date of the relapse in 38 and other problems, oh, yeah, yeah, it wasn't FDR. It was the war. You know, the war stimulated the economy. And then when you point out that there's a lot of evidence that that isn't true, then everybody says, so what was it? As if there was, has to be like a magic switch or knob or dial that had to be turned to the right setting and the economy would function again. It's just, um, the idea that it's too complicated. We don't understand it. It's not, not acceptable.
1: Well, this is actually why I, I explained, as I've, over the 10 years since I wrote On Being Certain, I've spent a little bit of time uh, down at Google talking with and chatting with and maybe consulting with um, the neuroscience people. And this is one of the reasons why I find that this idea of deep learning is, is helpful at every level. In other words, we get an output, okay, the economy got better after. And then it got worse, and then it got better again. Okay, that's the output. We don't have any idea what the underlying mechanisms were, but we attribute we attribute whatever uh, makes most makes us feel most likely that that it's correct. In other words, we use our feeling of knowing to a, to. To explain something that is essentially beyond our understanding, sort of black box event within, and that's unfortunately, I suspect that it, it applies to most of, most of history and economics, even though uh, I, I, I'm sure you disagree, but I mean, history is, is oftentimes interpreted by the winners, you know, and all these other phrases. Basically, their interpretations of a black box events for which psychological. The implication there's a psychological explanation implies we understand what went on in each person's mind that allowed this to happen, which we have no evidence for.
0: Why do you think I that, disagree
1: with that? Because you do it for a living?
0: No, nope, not really. No, no, I just play one on podcasts. Uh, no, in fact, uh, one of my favorite experiences as an economist was when a journalist asked me how many jobs were, were uh, lost because of NAFTA. And I said, I don't really have any idea. I also know that I suspect many were created. And so that right. general economists believe, and I emphasize the word believe, that uh, trade doesn't increase or decrease jobs. It changes the uh, kind of jobs we have. So that's what I told him. And he said uh, – no, I'm asking a question. How many jobs were created? I said, I have no idea. It's so complicated. So many things are happening at the same time. Why do you think you could tease out the independent effect of a very small part of the American economy? And he said, uh, but you're a professional economist. I said, yeah, the kind who doesn't lie to journalists, though, that's <laughs> about right. what they don't know. He said, you're ducking my question. I said, you just don't, I'm not ducking. I said, just don't like the answer, that's all. Uh, so I, I, I've often uh, argued that, that economics is more like history than it is like physics, which economists hate to hear, but I think uh, you know, no no one pretends to say what the cause of World War I is. They also don't they can talk about the precipitating moment, but they can't talk about the underlying cause. They can talk about a number of things. You can weave a story around all of them. Some are more convincing than others. Nobody pretends to say it was twenty-seven percent the interlocking alliances and 33% economic self-interest and 14% the bellicosity of the German, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's fake science. It's scientism masquerading as science. And we have a deep desire, I think, to, to have answers to those questions that can't be answered. Correct. You You mentioned talking about, say, Keynesianism. I, you know, a lot of people are guilty, myself included, of what what's called confirmation bias. We believe, cherry-pick, and take as true things that confirm our ideology, our politics, our tribe, whatever it is. What your book alerted me to, which I, I, I have to say is exciting and disturbing, is that it goes way beyond that. We just like knowing. It's not so much that it confirms I'm on the right team. It's that, oh, I know and I can move on. I can put it in the box called things I don't have to think about anymore.
1: Correct. And you know, the word confirmatory bias has a negative connotation. The word bias always has a negative connotation. But I I think if I get this right, because it's been a while, let me give you the example from the book that I used. Imagine that you're going to visit a friend that you saw 20 years ago, Joe Blow. And you remember his house as being on such and such a street and looking like such and such. It's a two door, two story house and whatever. And if you think about it for a second, you, that is based upon having been there 20 years ago, having seen the house and having a very strong feeling that it is in fact, Joe Blow's house, because in fact you had dinner with Joe Blow there. So and the memory is correct. So you recall the house, recall well, 100% likelihood that that's Joe Blow's house. And now you, 20 years later, you you and your wife are going to go visit him again. And you go driving over to where you think his house is and you're driving down the street and you say, that's Joe Blow's house. Now, how did you say that's Joe Blow's house? Because you had a combined memory of the previous visit to his house, and the very strong certainty sense of feeling of knowing that it is Joe Blow's house that's combined together into the old memory. Now you ring the doorbell, somebody else answers the door, and you say, where's Joe Blow? He says, oh, he doesn't live on the street. He lives two blocks over. And now you know you were wrong. But you had the feeling of knowing that it was his house before you had any outside evidence that it was his house based upon the old memory. So if you think about that, this looking for Joe Blow's house is already embedded with a confirmatory bias. You're going to look for those houses that are most like what's already in your memory. And this isn't a bias in the sense of it being some psychological predilection or a a, a personal belief system or ideology. It is simply the way you store information. So the confirmatory bias makes you say, that's Joe's house, and it made you look for that house, and then you were wrong. So when scientists do experiments, you know, they say get rid of confirmatory bias, but it's the confirmatory bias that drives the experiment in the first place.
0: Yeah, and you talk about that, the yeah. challenge of science without bias. It's not really a meaningful statement in my view, or science without theory, or just letting the numbers right. speak for right. themselves. That's, that's a delusion in my view. Right. The interesting thing about the Joe Blow example is uh, when the guy answers the door, your first thought can be, where are you keeping him? Yep. Where's the real Joe Blow? Where, where, right. where, where's Joe? Oh, he doesn't leave for No, come on, come on. You start looking around. I find it fascinating how – and you give some very disturbing examples in the book um, of what's called – a. I don't know how to say a Cotard syndrome, where right. people confronted with extraordinary evidence that they're wrong will not change their mind.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting to me that one of the um, sort of cardinal uh, beliefs of the last half century is about cognitive dissonance. And it was recently predicated upon um, I mean holding in your mind a belief that's wrong, in the, even in the face of overwhelming evidence that it's wrong, and it was thought to be a psychological mechanism. But in, the, um, in these uh, misidentification and delusional syn, uh, syndromes you see in neurology, particularly in people who have parietal lobe injury, they will lose their ability to properly identify things. And the, and the case I think I had in the book was, and I remember very distinctly, was a rather elegant antique yeah. collector who uh, lived near Mount Zion Hospital. And, and he and he had a very small stroke, recovered within a few hours or whatever, a short period of time. And then he went back home and then he phoned me in a panic in his house the next day. And he said that, Somebody had replaced his wonderful antique uh, refectory table with a um, with an imitation, and he was really upset. And I went over there, and the table was like I don't know a gigantic. Table it would take eight, it would take several men to lift it to get it out of the room, and he he understood that, and he said, "But somebody's taken and replaced it with an imitation," and I, he said. And he said to me, he ran his hand along the table, I still remember him, he was an elegant man with slender fingers and, you know, polished nails. And he ran his finger along the table he says, you know, um, these are the same wormholes and this is the same patina and this is the exact same dimensions. But it's not my table. It's a different table. And he knew that it was practically impossible of taking the table out. He knew that it met all the dimensions, but it no longer felt the same. And it was then that I understood that cognitive dissonance wasn't simply a psychological aberration. It actually occurred as a result of a neurological malfunction. And it's one of the things that prompted me to think about why it is that people hold these beliefs to be true in in the face of overwhelming evidence. And it goes back to the challenger comment about the students is yes, that's my handwriting, but that's not what happened. And and so there are a zillion examples. And in fact there are studies that show that you can stimulate that feeling of knowing in people undergoing brain surgery even when they're not having a thought to which they attach the feeling of knowing. In other words, they have a feeling of knowing even though there's nothing that they're thinking about that would be what they would know. And so I started to realize that this this whole concept of of confirmation bias of of, of holding beliefs the, all for, for psychological reasons is was is is the metaphor that's arisen out of our belief in psychology's explanation for everything and maybe perhaps even at a freudian level about the power of the unconscious but if it is the power of the unconscious it's not at the psychological level it's at the neural functional level
0: and of course the as, as you said i mean it's why it's such a good story and, and it's possible you misremember it Robert, you've, you've added those indications um, in the desk because it makes it so much more convincing. And his hand running his, the van running his hand along the top saying, wow, they did such a good job imitating the, the
1: my table. Um, and, you, and you know what you know, I, what I might remember? I might remember the story I've told about this.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I have no
1: idea that I remember the story versus the actual event. I haven't. And, and you know, your memories, as they're constantly upgraded, are not labeled as, as version one, two, three, four, and five.
0: It's a shame. But I wanted to react to that because uh, at one point I think you said cognitive dissonance, you know, you, the evidence is overwhelming. I, I would argue that in in most of the intellectual part of life where we argue about, say, Keynesian economics, the minimum wage, uh, income inequality, tariffs, who should be the next president of the United States, all the things that we scream about on social media, uh, both sides have tons of evidence to choose from. There's no, there's no right. shortage of evidence. So. Unlike the desk, where evidence is, quote, overwhelming, in most of social science, there's just no, no such thing as over, even in, and certainly in medicine, even, we'll talk about that in a minute, but there's no overwhelming evidence. And, uh, and yet, instead of coming to the view that, well, we really don't know much about these issues, I should probably be cautious in what I say, we get very certain. And so that uh, feeling of knowing, uh, I think one of the things that I, that I draw from the book is that that is a powerful human urge. And it's not just, it's not just as you say, it's not just a sort of, oh, I have to hold this view close to my by myself because it's part of my identity or I have to hold this view because otherwise it would mean my whole life's been a lie. It's just I like holding the view. (laughs) I like knowing I'm right.
1: Well, there's so there's there's yes, so there's the pleasure aspect of it, which is in in, there's no question that, that that the greater the sense of pleasure you get out of knowing, the harder it it is to overcome it. And so these people, I, I I see people on the far left and right. I don't mean just politically, but in anything, where they are firmly convinced. But there's a they have a smile of conviction that's almost uh, beautific, almost religious in nature. Oh, I mean, it's and um, it is a very strong power pleasure and it comes and that probably comes in some area of the brain that causes cocaine addiction alcohol addiction gambling addictions etc and i think people get addicted to knowing and i mean that to me the most the ugliest person around is usually the mr know-it-all and you and and, and what you it's hard to say is that this is that for whatever reasons that it developed it becomes a the way that his brain responds to new information uh
0: i just want to mention in passing i'm and get your thoughts, is that I used to be closer to that person when I was 20 than I am now. At least I like to think so. Uh, if you thought about that, you don't. I don't think you write about it in the book the role that age plays. in, in uh, It's almost a cliche that as we get older, we, we get wiser and understand how little we know. But uh, that is an interesting phenomenon
1: to me. Well, you know, it really is. You learn from your mistakes. In order to learn from your mistakes, you have to remember them. <laughs> <laughs> and and so it works both ways you see some old people who are fossilized who think that they that 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 their view of nostalgia is exactly the way it was and there other people say boy i screwed up so many times i made so many wrong judgments and wrong turns that that i have got to be very and to me for example the thing that's driven me to this with age is is the more you understand the history of science you understand the history of excess and if, if scientists with, who are trying to use evidence better than most, you know, just uh, uh, morals, things for which you can't get much evidence, if, if they're that wrong that often, then you've got to hold at the top top of your list of things, I could be wrong about this. It just, it seems to be the process of learning. So if you, if wisdom is understanding history, is a succession of mistakes that may, um, that mistakes in interpretation and then you have a sort of more open-minded view i think maybe maybe
0: i like the Feynman quote the first rule is not to fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool I try to i try to keep that in mind and i think we have a lot of romance about science that they just scientists just sit around trying to figure things out we're even when we're mere social scientists we we have egos and we have biases that are you know counterproductive and
1: Easy to fool yourself. A lot going on. Well, you know, I, I, th- I don't know if I mentioned in this, in that, oh, I'm being certain, or the other book about this, a cardiac surgeon of some repute who did a study on whether or not hands-off uh, massage. Now I've I, I, forgotten the name for it now, but it's where you run your hand over the patient's body but don't actually touch them will improve cardiac surgery And when they asked him why he came up with this idea he said, well I had no a priori uh, opinion on this then you then, then I would say well why would you do the study I mean yeah. that'd be that be equivalent to seeing whether eating lasagna helped cardiac surgery I mean it, it, you'd say well, why did you so why when you if, if and this was sort of the plea that I have in my second book is that scientists, initiate almost all research and i mean when i say almost all i mean i'm just trying to be generous <laughs> from the point of view of some preconception often one that they don't understand at all but it's just one that's that tweaks them and I'm, i was you know you you think about albert einstein is, is, is theories of relativity and then he was working in the the Swiss Patent Office, and one of the big issues at that time was about the, it was the nature of time and getting uh, railroad scheduling, uh, so the trains would arrive on time. But he wasn't the only one thinking about it. Now, question is, if he hadn't worked in the in the uh, patent office, would would he have come up with the same idea? Maybe, maybe not. But did it, did thinking about time and getting the, so the trains, you know, tri- triggers experience about the man on the trains? Well, you never know. Um, he wouldn't, I wouldn't call that a bias. I would just call that prior experience and his, and his native temperament have shaded the way he starts thinking about the experiment. And that's not overcomable.
0: Yeah. Although you can, I think, and you, you say this, I think, as well in your book, it's hard to fix the brain using the brain. We understand that. I think it's possible to become more more aware of your unconscious world uh, and its impact on your conscious world, even if you don't understand it fully and even if you can't do it reliably every time. The example I'll give is that, you know, I I already confessed that when I saw your Challenger uh, story, I was so taken by it. I was just immediately just had the feeling of knowing and then shared it a bunch of times and Only when I prepared for this interview did I think back and say, you know, maybe it's not a good study. But I think we can be more, and what worries me is that given how conscious I am of it, that I don't think of it all the time is really scary. But I think you can become more conscious of it, more aware of it, more sensitive to the role that your priors slash experience slash predilections play a role in what you think is right.
1: Well, you know, if, if nothing else, if you accept the fact that our knowledge of our, in other words, the unexamined life isn't worth living is one extreme, which I happen to nearly completely agree with. And I've always, you know, I've written several novels with the idea of some degree of introspection. And, but as I go along, I recognize that this introspection are just so stories. Yeah. They're ones that I tell myself about myself that that preserve my sense of integrity, even in, as I write a chapter in a book about the sense of self as an illusion. And I go, well, okay, so I got self as an illusion. On the other hand, and meanwhile I'm telling myself, aren't I smart that I know that self is an illusion? Well, what I mean, how ridiculous is that? Yeah. But once you've got to kind of see yourself as being trapped like in a huge Escher diagram that happens to be your your, your self-perception, then you can kind of enjoy, you can laugh at your own behavior. And you can say, you know, like I see people that act completely off base to me and I go, well, I'm going to ascribe the worst possible motives for them because it's personal. No, it's not personal in many cases. Maybe they, you know, and and it allows me to see, I mean, I, can, I watch this present, the division of America over Trump, you know, and I go, golly, this is unnecessary. If people could only understand that they were operating according to a bunch of principles they don't understand and hidden layers that are firing off in ways that they can't, but that they can get limited insight and recognize that they are, more or less prone to feelings of certainty, more or less prone to to risk aversion, sense of optimism. If they can learn a little bit about what they think their tendencies are, they might be able to accept that other people with an other set of tendencies are gonna see the world entirely differently. Without that, you're really lost. But at the same time, you still don't understand much about yourself. You understand that you've maybe been asking the wrong questions and using the wrong answers.
0: So, So I love that course, I also love the idea that I'm above the fray, and uh, I'm not subject to those pitiful, uh, emotional responses and, and and superficial conclusions, engendering all that anger. And you know, when I say things like what you just said, people say, "But don't you understand? Both sides aren't equal." And I say, "Of course they're not. That's not what we're talking about at all." But that they um, they just double down usually, uh, and I feel smug if if I'm not careful about how deep and thoughtful I am. So it's it's a little bit tricky. Uh, the reason I found your book is that uh, on on Twitter, Julia Gallif, uh, who hosts a podcast, Rationally Speaking, uh, suggested it would be useful to have a survey of parents uh, anticipating whether to have children or not, follow them for 20 years, and then see if they felt they'd made the right decision, either having children or not having children. I think I'm summarizing what she said. right? And my view was that was not a productive survey to run. And we went back and forth, and and one of my themes was that after you have children, you're a different person. It's very hard to know how that should complicate your analysis of the data, if, even if the data were gathered in an accurate way, even if people in surveys don't lie, even if people have different had the same meaning of what one to five meant on a scale of happiness. It's just even if you're not even if you're a lot like all the people they have to survey, I mean, there's just so much um there that is not as scientific as it looks. But the part that really struck me is that I started to think about the headline that would come out of that survey. Uh 92% of parents glad they had kids. And I realized, and this is where your book I didn't realize it until I read your book, which sort of brought it home, is that when you read that sentence in the newspaper, You read something that's not what's there. What you read is, oh, a fact. Like, it's colder in the winter than the summer. Or, uh, Will Chamberlain is taller than me. Or, uh, it's farther from my house to the Capitol than it is from my house to my neighbor. Those are facts. Those are things that get confirmed over and over and over and over and over again. But when I read ninety two percent, I just put that in the same box as those facts, especially if I'm eager to have children. <laughs> if I'm not so eager, I might think I wonder whether that survey was done by Gallup or the American Council of Christian Families, or I wonder what the question was. They asked him I wonder if they had more well, than had- one kid i want right and and yet we consume numbers, I think, in a very strange way.
1: Well, let me just give you an anecdote which uh, maybe two. When I uh, was working at Mount Zion UCSF, I was, I used the word forced advisedly to be the consultant to the pain clinic there. And they had a medical anthropologist, well-trained, who did surveys on the people who came through it was a one-week intensive pain evaluation clinic where they... They were seen by multi, multiple specialties, neurologists, orthopedists, neurosurgeons, whatever, for chronic pain. And and afterwards, he wanted to see how they did. Now, we know just historically that in any kind of pain treatment, you have to judge it against placebo. And just for sake of discussion, most people accept as a ballpark figure, 30% placebo effect. Okay. okay. So they… Only so, 30, not
0: 307 30.
1: You know, yeah. I right. feel more 20, confident if right. you
0: said thirty point <laughs> seven, but we'll just go with thirty.
1: <laughs> yeah, So, anyhow, third. So, imagine, So, they uh, this guy asked the question, um, "Did Mount Zion Pain Clinic help you?" And he got a sixty percent positive response. Th- th- these are the exact questions. And the other question was, "Are you physically better as the result of your experience at Mount Zion?" And you got a thirty percent response, and so you got them arguing for more funding, claiming that they was the 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 clinic was twice as good as placebo. Then the question is, what was better? Uh, were the people better physically, or you know, felt? No, they didn't feel better, but they felt the clinic helped them. <laughs> now that's a fabulous observation. Yeah, it really is. And on, Fantastic, and, and and there was a, there's one and I have in the Skeptics Guide to the Mind, which is more alarming for a different reason. That there's a neurologic syndrome called locked-in syndrome, in which people get a brainstem injury and in which leaves them completely paralyzed, but able to communicate to varying degrees through eye movements. But they're fully conscious because it's a brainstem injury and doesn't necessarily affect the cortex. So this. This fellow, who, as far as I could tell, was a uh, um, religious man living in Belgium, but very well trained neurologist, MD PhD, did a questionnaire on these people, and he determined by asking them, "How are you? Are you happy? Your degree of happiness? Are you satisfied with your life? Are you? um, Do you wish you were dead?" came up with the conclusion that on average the people with locked-in syndrome were as happy as ordinary people and they had no desire to end their lives. So he came out very strongly against any concept of euthanasia in this group. And I'm thinking to myself, how can you ask somebody who's completely paralyzed and you're their caretaker how they feel? It makes absolutely no sense at all. And yet it becomes the basis for him being, being an advocate against euthanasia.
0: You're saying that makes no sense at all because they're going to lie to him? They're going to feel bad don't, telling they, him? They
1: don't, they, they don't even know that they're lying. If someone's, someone says, you go to a doctor, even if you're not better, how are you doing? Oh, I think I'm better. I mean, you don't want to disappoint your doctor, especially when your life supports depend on it. Um, you know, my
0: parents don't like to get a second opinion. I say, why not? What might hurt his feelings?
1: Yeah, no say, and, and so please get a yeah, second exactly.
0: opinion. <laughs>
1: yeah. So what you're really left with is in this case, this poor guy who's completely paralyzed, is being asked questions about his life. Um and you can see even the way he says it kind of gets, Hey Mr. Jones, how you doing? How you feeling? You feeling okay, you happy? Well what's the guy gonna say? I mean, and he's trying to do blink, make eye movement. I mean, it's, 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 it's an impossible situation in which to get a, an accurate answer. And yet this is referred to as evidence, and the evidence is translated into the number of people that were asked versus the number of people who responded positively, and then it's given a number. And this is, unfortunately, one of the fallacies, fallacies of social psychology is, is, is translating subjectivity into numbers.
0: So my claim, and I don't know if it's true, it's just sort of interesting speculation, is that when it's translated into a number, because it sounds more scientific, people are more likely to believe it. So if I heard that 92, or even better, 92.4% of parents who had kids are glad they had them, I think, oh, oh, well, that's truth. As opposed to a lot of parents who have kids are happy about it, which is like, oh, that's just a feeling. It just seems to me we're somewhat either culturally or 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 physically hardwired to find those kind of uh that kind of evidence persuasive and i've become um increasingly interested in in what i would call other forms of knowledge so if you want to decide whether to have kids or not instead of looking at that survey maybe you should read a novel about about people who have uh who have kids a family life uh maybe you should talk to your friends there's other kinds of evidence that aren't just survey responses or measured with decimal points. Um, you should be introspective. Maybe read some philosophy. Uh, think about the purpose of life. There's just many, many other ways to come to, to, to decisions besides running regression or, or parsing the numbers.
1: Well, two things. First of all, this is the problem of scientism. I mean, this is that out, outgrowth of enlightenment and evidence-based thinking. And the the good point is that when evidence is available, such as does lowering cholesterol prevent heart disease? Even though there's obviously some you can, there's some dispute, and you can just argue the numbers. There is there's good evidence based stuff, um, and there's bad evidence, and there's no evidence. Unfortunately, they're all lumped together, and people. Some people now, for example, I see there's a measles outbreak in Brooklyn um, because because of the uh, Shabby evidence about the relationship between measles and autism. Yep.
0: Okay, and vaccines, so, vaccines yeah, and that, autism. That,
1: that, that, that's, yeah, that's what I meant. And um, so what we're left with is that scientism has assigned the uh, us the job of trying to evaluate evidence, even when the evidence is based upon total subjectivity, such as the case of the Mount Zion Pain Clinic. Um, conversely, you made the comment about. Are there other modes of learning? And I should say that after having written these two books, I have become convinced that further exposition by footnotes, et cetera, et cetera, is unlikely to convince anybody of anything. And I've actually pretty much, except for the occasional essay and op-ed piece, have abandoned nonfiction as a way I've been publishing for example, I published a couple. To my amazement, published published a couple of poems in the American Academy of Neurology's main journal, of Neurology. And what I've tried to do is point out the ambiguities and subjectivities of various aspects of neurology. And now I've done some short stories, um, and I'm going to start as of now. Um, I was asked to write for this bioethics journal, the Cambridge Quarterly Journal of Bioethics, and. And I said, I'll only do it if I can make it fiction. And they agreed based on <laughs> some stuff they read. So I'm actually going in, in these journals filled with all of this, uh, num- all these numbers. There's going to be a little section saying this is where science meets story. And I'm going to try and see if I can't come up with some stories which kind of illuminate some of the difficulties with um Purely fictitious stories or vignettes, whatever, because I do think it's an alternative route. I, 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 science is not the end point, even though you could guys like Sam Harris telling you that science can determine morality. That's just that's just bunk bunkum.
0: Yeah, it's not my – I find that – I don't agree. Um, I agree with you. I don't agree with them. Um, and of course, I, I love science, good science. I, there's good science. There's bad science. Um, we had um, Michael Pollan on the program talking about psychedelics, and um, it, it, you touch on this, not literally, you should talk about his work or the work he's t- discussing, but uh, I would call it, you could call it a religious feeling, a feeling of transcendence. It appears that there are perhaps three ways to get there from here. One is to uh, have what has traditionally been called a religious experience discussed by William James and others, sometimes right. experienced by us as human beings where we are overwhelmed um, and have a feeling we're part of something much larger than ourselves. That feeling can come from drugs, from LSD or mushrooms, right. psychedelic mushrooms. And it, it appears from your book that it also can come from stimulating certain parts of the brain. Um, and it raises two questions for me, uh, as a religious person who's sympathetic to uh, the religious impulse and the feeling of transcendence and the sublime, one you suggest that it could be genetic—one's uh, interest in those, in, in ability to feel those things—and secondly, I'm curious if you want to speculate on uh, if why evolution would would create such a thing, why we would have a taste for the transcendent. Um,
1: I, 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 I can't answer anything about why evolution might do that. I, th- I think, though, the other senses, feelings of knowing, may are not quite are not the same as a religious experience, but they have some. They don't. They, they aren't the same, but they rhyme. Yep. You know, is, is that there is life is life without purpose is is is, is, is meaningless. It's, it's, it's hopeless you know and and no purpose is, is despair. So you need some neurological basis for con- once you understand I, I don't know if they go together, once you know that you're going to die eventually or that life is fleeting and all the rest of it, you have to have some counterbalancing mechanism for recognizing that uh, um, uh, you can still have purpose or at least try to figure out how to, to you know, get some meaning out of life, okay? So I, that, that's, but that doesn't explain how evolution would work. But I would imagine those people who have a strong sense of purpose uh, are more likely to survive than those with a weak sense of purpose. And purpose somehow has a religious fervor to it. Now, by that I mean you take the most ardent, skeptical, atheist, rationalist, the enthusiasm with which a uh, Christopher Hitchens approached his final days um enjoying his atheism. you read about Daniel Dennett and uh, his pleasure at not not invoking any extra corporeal something or other when he had an ruptured aortic aneurysm. there's they're still they 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 are getting a sense of purpose out of denying hmm. religion. It's the same kind of glee that people or that people have who have religion. And I think that that, that, um, there is a sense of some, you have to have a sense of something greater to move you along in the world. But that greater thing could be as much as building a boat in a bottle or, you know, or solving the the Sunday New York times crossword puzzle, which doesn't do it for me or something truly transcendent. And again, that would be uh, in part dependent on your, uh, your basic physiology, I guess, how you're, how you're wired. Um,
0: I don't, I've, I think that's a common view. I don't part of what you said. I'm going to disagree with strongly. Okay. I, I don't, I happen to have, uh, I do have some purpose purposiveness in my life in a sense of meaning and religion is part of the reason I do. I, I'm open to the possibility that just being the host of econ talk would be enough for me. Uh, Certainly, I appreciate all of you out there listening, and, and it really gives me incredible satisfaction to hear from you in ways about how we can talk is, is helpful or useful or interesting or entertaining to you. So that's nice. But, you know, the fact that life is temporary, I don't go to a, I don't go to a football game or a show on Broadway and say, oh, what a waste of time. It, it doesn't last forever. Right, there are a lot of things in, that we experience in life that are glorious, that are short-lived. Absolutely, and life is one of them. And, and if if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in morality from the divine, and you just believe in in finding the most satisfying life, whatever that means to you as a human being, and it means very different things to everybody, why would you just enjoy it while you can and and not? Why would that lead to despair? Right? I don't. I, I, I don't so I agree with you that people who have purpose in life, whether it's building a boat in a bottle or, or serving God or whatever it is, tend to seem – they often are more content, less t- full of despair. Maybe. Not sure, but maybe. But I don't understand why dis- despair should be the natural product of a, of a finite life. And yet that does seem to be the case.
1: Um, I would agree with you. And I, I, in and. I, I think that's correct. In other words, if, if, perhaps I've confused that with the sense of pleasure. In other words, um, if you're building a boat in a bottle and it gives you a sense of pleasure and you have a succession of pleasures and your life is over, that's just fine with me. But uh, I, when you ask why, why is religion – well, religion for some people has meaning I – mean, I had a religious experience. I'm not religious, but I had one. Where I was invited by a friend to go to a, a a gospel meeting in in Harlem, and I had one of these experiences without going into detail where it made my hair stand on then it was like one of those really rare moments you're lucky if you have one or two in your lifetime yep and, and um, this week in the New York Times, Simon Critchley who edits the um, stone section of the philosophy of section of the New York Times describes a similar one when he was visiting a monastery in at Mount Athos in Greece. And I wrote him a little note and it's telling me that a similar one, you know, as I've written for him a few times. Anyhow, And, and, and we were in agreement that these are transcendent experiences that are not associated with, that are associated with religion, but are not religious. Their experiences occurred under the um, setting of religion. Do you follow me, but yeah. he's not. And that the, it those things really do enhance your life. They're not necessary, but they do enhance it. They give you a sense of something um, beyond just being yourself. No, for um, sure. And you ask me why it is that that's how it's evolved. Evolutionary, I I should say I'm very reluctant to ascribe evolutionary causes to all human behavior. Because some of it simply is not explainable that way, but perhaps this is explainable in some way, and that it gives comfort. I I don't really know.
0: Well, Alan Lightman was on the program, and I don't know if you've read his book uh, *Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine*. But he talks about having transcendent experiences. Also, not a believer, but he said it does jar you. And you know, he, his answer was uh, some of those. Um, Feel I think this was his answer. Was some of those feelings are just they came along with other evolutionary stuff that wasn't necessarily. I, I just find it. You can go back and listen to his episode, listeners. I don't want to try to do justice to it because he said it very well, but the. Um, I, I find it. Um, I find it interesting that we are creatures who want to understand why we're here. The other creatures just go about their business. <laughs> they follow them. But you
1: see, you see, that's actually one of the things that what, what I was referring to is that in this particular um, episode that I had in, in, in Harlem, it really wasn't, it wasn't a question I was asking. Correct. Right. And it really wasn't associated with an answer. It was just a feeling that overcame me. Yeah. And it, I didn't feel like it needed an explanation.
0: Well, I'm sure it was chemical, Robert, but well, that it, doesn't it, mean it wasn't transcendent.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah I, mean, I enjoyed it for what it was, which, whatever it was, without it. So when, you, when people talk about religious experience, I, I I just say, okay, I had an experience which was – and you, you sometimes you will hear that with music or different things will trigger it or walk in the woods whatever. Yeah, um, Yosemite
0: National Park does yep. it for me sometimes. Yep. Um, there's a beach in California I like. Takes me to a different place, and for me, it ties into my religious beliefs. But if it, I can understand that if you weren't religious, you could still have a religious experience there; It just wouldn't be based on God or anything. And uh, but in,
1: you see that, and this is actually what I was referring to earlier in our conversation about the hidden layer. So I have no religious beliefs. Or as close to none as none is imaginable, that but that does not <laughs> yeah, I mean. But I doesn't mean that I don't have a strong urge for spiritual. Yeah, you see, so those are separate mechanisms. In other words, uh, so for to me, I love certain kinds of music, poetry, um, well-written sentence, things that you know, look at my wife's smiley face or whatever that are are spiritual, but not religious. And people tend to lump them together. So I can have the same experience maybe that you might have or, or similar, but it would have a different explanation for me that it, no explanation is necessary at all. Uh, someone else might say, oh, I, I saw Jesus or Muhammad or whatever. It doesn't. It, it's, it's ways that trying to explain and the desire to explain is as yet a separate mechanism so I don't find much joy in explaining the the, 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 the pauses and minuses of life because I always know that I'm almost likely going to be dead wrong or incomplete so I don't explanation has never been a great pleasure for me
0: yeah I think, uh, I think there should be a fundamental agnosticism about all of this um, and agnosticism is the really the opposite of what your book's about right um, it's saying, I don't know, as opposed to, I'm pretty sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, that's true. And you know, it's interesting is that what they've ruined a lot of modern drama by trying to to create shortcuts to belief. For example, I remember seeing a Jodie Foster's movie about why she became a, I don't know, a policewoman or a, whatever she was, maybe the FBI agent or something, because they said because her father was a sheriff and got killed in action. I mean, this kind of—I mean, it's just like nonsense, you know. Uh, but it's it—it's that kind of A leads to B, and therefore, they too must be causative. That it leads people to believe they understand the human condition, which uh, is far from the truth.
0: So let's close on this question of of you know what to do about all this. Um, I often counsel people with my writing or on this program to to get into the habit of enjoying saying, I don't know. And I would say it's analogous to drinking beer. First class is a little bitter. And you think, why would anyone want to do this? But eventually you can develop a taste for it. And um, you know, the way I look at what we've just been talking about is that there's some fundamental mysteries to human existence that you should savor, not figure out or know that you're going to figure out you might not be able to figure them out. It's part of the human experience. Uh, Alan Watts has a very uh, uh, interesting book. The, the title is The Wisdom of Insecurity. And I think right. I think that's, you know, I think that's a great way to live. But most people don't want to live that way. Uh, it's hard to sell books. I suspect, on um, being certain, didn't sell a million copies. It probably was somewhat successful, but not everybody wants to be told that they don't know everything. <laughs> Right, and I worry about that for my own work Um, so how do you having written that book as a successor how do you interact with people now when they ask for your thoughts on these matters do you try to convince them to be more humble Uh, you did at the end of this book which I love but I'm sure a lot of people go like nah I'm kind of happy where I am so how do you deal with that
1: well this is where I think the last 10 years since I've written this it why I've come to see that, that if fundam- if there's a fundamental disagreement or they say nah, I, I don't see that I can change things I, and I don't really try anymore I, I do occasionally I might harangue my wife because I feel like I got a captive audience <laughs> but, so, but not really um, you but <laughs> you know but under I, I'm kind of given up the idea that I can influence other people through argument. I think, think this because argument really is uh, suggests that we are sufficiently rational that we can overcome our innate biases and put aside whatever our beliefs are and just think. So, but what you can do is you can affect people emotionally by telling a story, and if the story is. Uh, Appropriate. Some people go, oh, yeah, and maybe they'll go away and think about it. Like when you were talking about my book, the thing you remember about the guy with his table and you remember the story about the challenger, you may not remember the arguments that underlie them or their studies that were done. You remember the, the – we're storytelling people. And if if somehow – I mean, there, 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 there are Buddhist um, parables about um, – you know, storytelling on that. There was, I can't know if I remember this right. If I got it wrong, then just, you can maybe delete it. But, about this, these two, uh, you know, these two Buddhist monks are, uh, who, who come from a, are sitting on a, on a, on a stream. And this one lady's on the other side of the stream and she's too, too short to get across the stream. So this one, one, one of the monks goes and carries her across the stream to the other side. And, then they walk around and they don't say anything because they can't talk till dinner time. At dinner time, um, he says, you know, you're not supposed to carry that woman across the street. That's against the rules. He says, I married a car, or carried her across the stream. He says, but you carried her in your mind the whole day. And then I, I, I think to myself, you know, there are all these little stories about that make you, you know, about obsession and um, rules and what's right and what's wrong and stuff that. Really come out of storytelling. They don't come out of this. Uh, um, uh, this is why Trump's right. He's wrong. This is why immigration's right. I just I wrote a a, 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 a little op-ed piece for EON, A E O N, which is a really great yeah. magazine. Recently, a week or two ago, about how look upon immigration as a process of osmosis. Less goes to greater. Forget about it being all these moral issues and just say, this is this is going to continue and as climate change heats up, more people are going to be leaving the hot areas for the cool areas and as population increases, the areas the most, po- and, and if you look upon it as a physical thing and get away from the, maybe there's another way of thinking about it. By the same token, if we could think about our thoughts as being primarily beyond our control and that we can't influence other people through our thoughts, we can influence them through demonstrations of humility, gratitude, empathy and uh, we're, and that separate people are still all in this together. I mean this is there's only one earth and we're on it and you know if we screw it up that's it and uh, this argument about right or wrong gets us nowhere maybe maybe there's an, and then, uh, unfortunately I'm not very optimistic about this but that's about all I can come up with.
0: I guess today has been Robert Burton his book is on being Certain. Robert, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Thanks very much. Enjoyed that.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening